Welcome everyone to the Hoover Institution Security by the Book series. Um, our next book will be in September. It will be uh, a book called The Internationalists by Ona Hathaway and Scott Shapiro of Yale Law School. It's a book about, believe it or not, the important influence of the, uh, uh, the Kellogg-Briand uh, Pact, believe it or not, the supposedly irrelevant pact and how important it actually was. Today, um, I'm truly thrilled to have my esteemed colleague, Gra uh, Graham Allison, uh, to talk about his new book, Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap? Um, it's a great book. I told Graham it's one of the best books I've read in a long time, and I highly recommend it. It's great because it deals with very important issues, obviously, and it deals with them in a deep and serious way and it, with complicated uh, uh, ideas, but they're presented in an extraordinarily accessible way. So I highly recommend it. So Graham, what is, what is the Thucydides trap? So uh, I, this is the beginning of the fifth week since the uh, publication of this book. And so I've been out rolling it out uh, here, there, hither and yon. I was in uh, Beijing and Dalian a couple of weeks ago. So the, uh, first I would say, especially for American audiences, Thucydides is multisyllabic. And I know that doesn't work for uh, Doyle when he's writing for the newspaper. You've got to get down to one syllable or two. Uh, but for this group, multisyllabic is not bad. Did I, did I, did I pronounce no, all the syllables? Perfectly. Sure. Per okay. Perfectly. And second, it's a mouthful. Okay. And third, if we were trying to spell it, that's even harder. But Thucydides should be part of the mental library of anybody who uh, is serious about books for security. So Thucydides, we even say out loud so everybody's comfortable. Thucydides, Thucydides. In conjunction with the book, we put up a, uh, a website, and there's a, a fun little tab called uh, Look Who's Talking About Thucydides. And if you uh, watch carefully, you'll see a shout-out from Wonder Woman, the new movie, uh, uh, in which he identifies Thucydides uh, after uh, Ludendorff gives her some uh, line about uh, uh, armistice is just the space between two wars. But in any case, <laughs> Thucydides was the founder of history. So this is the person who wrote the first ever serious history book that tried to tell what really happened without the benefit of mis mysterious actors or, or spirits or, uh, or, uh, or otherwise. Uh, and in his famous book, The Peloponnesian War, he uh, identified what he called the principal driver of war in the competition between the two great city-states of classical Greece, Athens and Sparta. So in a, in a word, Thucydides' trap is the dangerous dynamic that occurs when a rising power, like China today, threatens to displace a ruling power, like the U.S. In the, uh, in the, in the classical Greece case, 2,500 years ago, Thucydides' famous line said, it was the rise of Athens and the fear that this instilled in Sparta that made the war inevitable. And he gives his account of it. And again, since I see a lot of students here, uh, I'm eager for you to buy my book and to read it carefully. But if I were telling the truth, I would say there's a book a whole lot better than my book, and it's called The Peloponnesian War, which you can go download for free 
absolutely for free right now. Just read the first 100 pages. That's book one. And every page will knock your socks off. Okay? Actually, I like the book so much that in my book, Every chapter begins with a quote from Thucydides. So a couple had, of quotes. In some couple of quotes. He, he had more than one idea. He's got an idea in virtually every page, and almost all of them give you real insight into what's going on. But Thucydides' trap is a, is a storyline that really is as old as history itself. So explain how it applies, because the book is, is a lot going on in the book, and it covers a lot of history and uses a lot of case studies. But it's primarily about understanding the structural situation that you say exists now between the United States and China. So give us a general sense of the outlook of the United States as ruling power and the outlook of China as rising power, as you, as you portray it in the book. So uh, if you ask what is the, uh, has been the geopolitical event of the past generation, of some of your you know, last 25 years, big event has been the rise of China, a country that didn't figure in any of the international league tables 25 years ago, has now become a rival and even surpassed the U.S. in many dimensions. In the book, I have a chapter on, for those who haven't been watching this space, called The Rise of China. And I say in it, uh, I take a quote from Vaclav Havel, the former Czech president, who said, things have happened so fast, we haven't yet had time to be astonished. So be astonished. <clears throat> if we had a, uh, if we if we were doing slides, I would show you the illustration I use for this in my presentations, which first Jack will relate to, is the Harvard Bridge. It's called the Anderson Bridge that goes across the Charles River between the business school and the Kennedy School. This bridge, the re rehabilitation of it, began when I was dean of the Kennedy School, and I quit being dean in 1989. The project began in earnest in 2012. It was a two-year project and backed up traffic hugely. I've seen this traffic jam. I've sat in this traffic jam often. After two years, they said it was going to take another year. Then they said it was going to take another year. If you go to the website now, they've given up telling when it's going to be finished. And it's three times over budget. So that's the Anderson Bridge at Harvard. Then I show people the Sanyan, Sanyan, Sanyan Bridge in Beijing. I wrote across this three weeks ago. It's twice as big as the Anderson Bridge. They began to do its reconstruction in 2015. How long did it take to complete the construction of the Sanyan Bridge? 40, 43 hours. For, 43 hours. 43 hours. Go, go to YouTube and put in Sanyan Bridge and you can watch the timestamp of this bridge being reconstructed. And I actually said to the uh, fellow in uh, Beijing, uh, if they would come and finish the Harvard Bridge, I would make a small contribution to the... Uh, uh, to the uh. So I also, in the book, I give you uh, uh, a short version of a, of, a, of a quiz I give my students at Harvard, which says, when could China become number one? Uh, uh, and I have 26 indicators. Uh, so. Uh, biggest middle class, uh, largest number of billionaires, uh, fastest uh, supercomputers, uh, biggest trading nation, biggest national economy. Uh, students guess, they have to guess which for each year. Some say 2040, 2050, not in my lifetime. Then I give them the second slide. I give you a short version of this in the book. And it just says already. 
So all those things have already happened. China is already the fastest supercomputer, already has the most artificial intelligence uh, advanced research, already has the most billionaires, already is the principal trading nation, already has the largest economy in the world. So the big takeaway from the IMF World Bank meeting in 2014, which most of Washington missed, but if you go to the IMF website or the CIA website, you'll see this, measured by purchasing power parity, which is the yardstick that both CAA and IMF think is the best single yardstick for comparing national economies, China's economy became bigger than the U.S. in 2014. And on the current trend line, by 2024, China will be about half again larger than the U.S. in terms of GDP. Now, that's only one metric, but as I point out in the book, if you try to understand the impact, this is like economic gravity. And I illustrate it in terms of a very simplistic illustration in the book of a seesaw. So imagine a schoolyard seesaw in which U.S. is sitting on one end of the seesaw and China is on the other end. In 24, so I start with 2004, China is 15% the size of the U.S. In 2014, equal. In 2024, half again larger. So what is the consequence of that? The consequence of that is that basically this lifts U.S. feet right off the ground. And actually, I have a section in the book that my good colleague and friend Kurt Campbell doesn't enjoy as much as I do, but <clears throat> on the pivot. So what was the Obama administration's great contribution to policy towards Asia? It was called the pivot or the rebalance. And what was that about? That was about putting less weight on our left foot in the Middle East fighting wars so we could put more weight on our right foot in Asia where the future is going to be written. Uh, but I point out that while all this conversation was going on, our feet were just lifting off the ground to the point that whether you're putting weight on your left foot or your right foot doesn't quite work. And you can see a similar shift in the dynamics or in the, in the basic balance of power or correlation of forces in China's relations with every one of its neighbors in Asia. And that you can see playing out in its consequences. So let me ask you, so there's no doubt, and you document it well in the book, that China is a rising power economically, militarily, and in other dimensions. Give us a sense about what its ambition is. What is its ambition vis-a-vis -vis in its region and globally vis-a-vis -vis the United States? And then I want to talk about sure. the, the, United, the United States attitude before we talk about the structural problem that they face. Well, there are two, two, two levels of this. So uh, long before Donald Trump... Uh, uh, seized his mantra of make America great again, Xi Jinping had announced his mantra. This is in 2012 when he became president. And colloquially, it was to make China great again. He calls it the great rejuvenation of the great Chinese people. So Xi Jinping has made no secret of his ambition that China should be great again the way China was great before. Now then, second level, how does China think China was great before? <coughs> Answer, China, the word China means middle kingdom, center of the universe. The Chinese had no relationship with any other country that was anything other than a vassal. So China related to every other state as the metropole to the tributaries. And in China's conception, China was the dominant power in the world, Perrin, all of the world they knew, forever, for 4,000 years, until a 200-year interruption. That was when the Westerners arrived to exploit them. 
and to imperialize them. But the, the, the return to China's natural position as the dominant power in the first instance in Asia, but it, again, it, as far as they can see, is the return of China to its natural position in the world as they think of it and as they see it. And I think you can see this playing out in the, in the chapter on the South China Sea. I title it uh, just for cute, uh, China Seas, China Seas. So basically, looking out from Beijing, you look at the South China Sea, and it looks like, wait a minute, this is a body of water on our periphery. What in the world is the U.S. Navy doing there as the arbiter of who can build an island or who owns an island or how disputes should be settled? That looks very anomalous, as, as anomalous as, as uh, the presence of the Spanish or the Brits uh, looked at Teddy Roosevelt 125 years ago when he looked out at the Caribbean. And, and by the way, that's one of the great comparisons in the book is China's position today is like the, the United States 120, 130 years ago. So what, tell us about the U.S. side and, and, and the structural danger that you see as a result of this rising power, declining power dynamics. Well, I think it, it, in the book, I look at 16, I looked at the last 500 years of history, and I found 16 cases in which a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power. In 12 of the cases, the outcome is war. In four of the cases, the outcome is not war. So when Thucydides said inevitable, I say that's an exaggeration, but the odds are not good. Now, if I uh, look at this dynamic, and, and if you want to think of the cases that turned out badly, think of the rise of Germany in the period after the unification of Germany in 1870-71, and its impact on Britain that becomes the dynamic that allows the assassination of an archduke to trigger what became World War I. Again, it's an unbelievable story. I have a good chapter on it, because I've been fascinated by this, this history for a long, long time. It's way, way, way more implausible to me, even now, that somehow the Archduke, who doesn't really matter to anybody except his dad, is assassinated, and that becomes a trigger for burning down the whole of Europe. I mean, the whole thing is, is, is insane, okay? And, but lo and behold, in the condition in which you have a rising power threatening to displace a ruling power, external events that would be inconsequential or otherwise manageable can trigger actions and reactions that each seem to make sense in their own terms that lead you somewhere you don't want to go. In the current situation, you've got a rising China wanting to be China again, as they think of it, and getting bigger and getting stronger and therefore thinking, well, gee, I think my interests deserve more weight. I deserve more say. I deserve more sway. The arrangements that were put in place before I was here don't, didn't take account of, of me and, and of, of, of my... So when, when they look and see, here's the American Navy as the arbiter of events in the South China Sea, that looks anomalous to them. When I tell them, uh, but now wait a minute, the U.S. in the aftermath of World War II constructed a security and economic order that's allowed you a longer period of prosperous growth than you ever had in your whole 4,000 years before that. This has been extraordinary for, for everybody in Asia, and especially for China. They say, well, even if we accept that, 
that was then, and now we've arrived, and so you've done your part. Thank you very much. I think it's you know, time for you to go home. So from the Chinese point of view, it's extremely natural, and Thucydides would say they look like a perfect rising power to me. For the ruling power, to take the U.S. side, as you say, Jack, so Americans, uh, red-blooded Americans, and even more red-necked Americans like me, I'm from North Carolina, know that somewhere it is written, and I'm still looking for it. So if somebody finds the, the scripture that, that captures this, I'm eager. But it's somewhere either in the Bible or the Constitution or somewhere, but it says... Somewhere important. It says, USA means number one. <laughs> so we know that the U.S. is supposed to be number one. That's how things are. And the idea that somebody else should rival us, uh, uh, no, I don't believe that at all. I think that's wrong. They should not. Uh, I think that the order that the U.S. has created and built and sustained has been fantastic. And I think it should remain. But when I then look and say, well, but is China gotten bigger and stronger? Well, yes, it has. And if you were playing the Chinese hand, would you find it anomalous to see the U.S. Navy out in the South China Sea as the arbiter? Yeah, I probably would. And if you could push it back, would you probably push it back? Yes, I probably would. Well, except I'm an American, so now I'm going to go. So I would say that's the dilemma, and that was the dilemma for Britain as it watched this rising Germany. That was the dilemma for Sparta as it watched Athens. I mean, the, the, I have a chapter on the, the, the rivalry between Athens and Sparta, and again, it's breathtaking. I mean, the Athenians had in, were inventing everything. From a Spartan point of view, Sparta had ruled the Greek, Greeks for 100 years. Uh, Sparta and Athens had got together to fight the Persians. In the aftermath of that, the, the uh, Athenians basically just go crazy, inventing everything. So they invent Sophocles, Aristophanes, Euripides, so drama. They invent history, Thucydides. They invent philosophy, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. They invent architecture. Look at the Parthenon. You can't find a better building than the Parthenon anywhere today. So spectacular. They invent the professional navy. They had, guys in the professional navy that are going around. Uh, and and uh, from a Spartan point of view, they think these people no longer want to play by our rules, to which the answer is, that's right. They, they want to play by different rules. So I think Thucydides would say, uh, you could hardly find a better, ca if central casting were doing the ruling party, Americans look like ruling party. And if you're looking for a rising party, so I want to. We'll get to your how you analyze the problem and how how you, how you the ways in which you might diffuse the problem to become one of the four instead of one of the twelve cases where uh, they avoided war. But before that, I want to talk. One of the things you say about this structural relationship is, and you used the World War One example as a good example, is that when this relationship is present, some kind of accidental event or spark, as you call it, something small can in this structural context lead to something big. And in the book you give examples or hypotheticals, plausible hypotheticals involving Taiwan and South China Sea, but I want to talk about North Korea because that one is a little bit more salient right. today. So tell us uh, just a couple of things. One, how you see that possibly leading to something bigger. And you said recently, not in the book, but in a newspaper, you said that the North Korea situation was the Cuban Missile Crisis in slow motion. So if you could talk about those things. Sure. So, uh, I think that uh, I think most everybody in Washington recognizes that 
North Korea is the most dangerous hotspot on the globe today. And if you want a good sort of summary of it, look at Mattis's uh, uh, appearances recently or testimony. And I would say I agree 100 percent with his assessment. He calls this a, quote, clear and present danger, which in military speak means this is uh, serious, really serious. So why is it so serious? Uh, Kim Jong-un, as he demonstrated in his uh, July the 4th birthday present, uh, has the capacity to test ICBMs. ICBMs that if he tests a few more times will be able to fairly reliably deliver a nuclear warhead against San Francisco or Los Angeles or Seattle. So that's one train coming down the track. And he doesn't require anybody's permission to do this. He doesn't require anything from anybody externally. He can just do this, as he did. Even though we tell him he can't do it or the Chinese tell him he can't do it, yes, he can. It's all the, all the means that are required. On the other track is coming uh, Donald Trump. And uh, from the first moment that he heard about this, which was when he met with Obama after the election, and Obama said, this is a crisis that's brewing, and Trump went out and in two hours tweeted, not going to happen, not going to happen. And ever since, and every day when he has a chance to talk about it, he says, I don't know what Obama did, but let the can just keep kicked down the road. And I don't know what uh, Bush did. He just let the thing go down the road. The train just rumbled on. I don't know what Clinton did. He just let the thing rumble on. But I'm telling you, I'm not Clinton. I'm not Obama. I'm Trump. And I am not going to let North Korea have the capability to deliver nuclear bombs against the American homeland, this period. That's it. So at the Mary Lago summit uh, with, uh, in April with Xi, he said to him, look, this is the problem. And I'm telling you, you can solve this problem. But if you don't solve this problem, I will solve this problem. And you're not going to like the way I do. And then he served chocolate cake. This was at the opening dinner. He excused himself. He went to the room next door, and he announced that we were launching 50 cruise missiles against uh, uh, Syria, uh, just to underline the point, how can we do this? So here's these two trains coming down the track, one saying, this one is not going to reach the destination, and if I have to crash into it, I'll do so. So I would say, here you have a pipsqueak country, one by a very strange character, uh, which has the capacity to test ICBMs, it does. And you have a American president thinking, wait a minute, this guy, look and see what he did to this American student that he had in the Korea, the coma. Uh, you want to have him to be able to hold hostage San Francisco or Los Angeles with nuclear weapons? No, absolutely not. So can we prevent that happening? Well, we can. I mean, at the Defense Department, if you said, make sure they can't test ICBMs. I can, with cruise missiles, destroy their launching pads. That's pretty easy. Uh, and uh, then they can't test ICBMs. And well, what is the, the scenario is, by uh, which this leads to conflict with China? Right. So the question is just exactly right. So uh, you're China and I'm, or you're, you're Kim Jong-un, and I'm uh, playing the Trump hand for the second. So you say, okay, I'm going to test ICBMs again. So you do. And I, now the Defense Department comes to you and says, if they do another series of tests, we're going to think they'll be in the zone thinking they can deliver a weapon against the West Coast. So you say, well, can you prevent it? Yes. So cruise missile attacks 
on the launching pads. Let's take overnight, easy, not kill very many people. Uh, but then what does Kim Jong-un do? So the Defense Department, when it's played this out before, believes Kim Jong-un will likely respond with artillery shells against Seoul, where he can kill a half million people or a million people overnight or 24 hours. So let's imagine that happens. And that's why all South Korean governments say, no, no, no. Under no circumstances should you attack them for whatever. So they're never going to be in favor of attack. So uh, if they were to attack Seoul, then I think the American move is to say, well, then do you want to leave those artillery shells able to fire again, or do you want to destroy them? So our plan, I think, would be to destroy those, as well as all the other rockets and missiles that we can find. Well, that's a couple of thousand targets. <coughs> and we don't know where all of them are. So once we've attacked a couple of thousand targets, presumably we'll kill the regime as well. And <coughs> now you've got chaos in North Korea and a second Korean War. And again, most Americans won't remember, but in the first Korean War, we saw this before. I mean, this was the main topic of conversation in Beijing with government officials two weeks ago. They kept saying, well, wait a minute. Could North Korea drag China and the U.S. into a war that neither of us want? And I said, I think it could. But what is this scenario, unlike in the 50s, I don't fully understand why the Chinese would have a stake in a great power war with the United States over North Korea. Well, they don't. They, for certainly nobody in China that I've seen or read or learned about thinks that a war with the U.S. would be anything other than horrible, horrible. And nobody in the Pentagon thinks a war with China would be anything other than a horror. I mean, look at, look at uh, Mattis' testimony about this. He's very clear. This is going to be the bloodiest war anybody has seen, as he says, since 1953. But remember what happened in 1950. So in 1950, North Korea attacked South Korea right out of the blue, uh, pushed down the peninsula, almost capturing the whole peninsula. At the last minute, the Americans came to the rescue. MacArthur was left over in Japan. This is just five years after end of World War II. We pushed the North Koreans right back up the peninsula and were hoping, MacArthur was hoping, he was going to reunify the country under the government of Seoul before Christmas. And we were approaching the Chinese border, whereupon the Chinese, out of the blue, 300,000, attacked the Americans. And then another half million came into the fight and pushed us right back down the peninsula to the 38th parallel where it started. So from a Chinese point of view, they say, we have established the principle that there is not going to be a unified Korea that's an American military ally on our border. And we fought a in a war about that in 1950 when we were 150th your size. So if we want to go for it again, you know, be our guest. And I said to him, well, this is insane. You're talking, thinking about a war with the U.S. over something that doesn't really matter. And they say, well, you're thinking of a war with here that doesn't really matter that much either. So I would say it, it's at least as plausible that it could happen this time as it was the last time. Okay, that's sobering. Um, so you, so the, the, the big question in the book is how do we avoid this from happening? And you, and you use, 
your historical case study to try to draw some lessons. You call them clues for peace. I think you have a dozen of them. We don't, we don't have time to go through all of those, but I have to say that reading that dozen, it strikes me that most of them, they don't strike me as applicable here. The two that stood out as affecting, there are several that stand out, but the two that, the big ones were several of the peace clues involved the relevance of nuclear weapons and the unlikelihood of great power nuclear war. Um, and I have to say, I actually have a hard time because of the existence of nuclear weapons imagining, and I'm sure this is a failure of imagination, but imagining great power war among nuclear powers. So why won't that be the why won't that be the ultimate deterrent? That is a stabilizing force. You said it was the main stabilizing force with the Soviet Union and the United and the United States for throughout the Cold War. Why won't that do the job here to keep this from getting out of hand? Well, certainly the nuclear weapons are one big factor, and it's not just nuclear weapons, but nuclear weapons in numbers and in configuration that produce what uh, we call mutual assured destruction. So. Again, just to remember, mutual assured destruction is after I've done my best to disarm Jack, he can still destroy me. So basically a war that kills him ultimately is suicidal for me as well. That has a huge cautionary effect. And therefore it doesn't happen. And that, that therefore doesn't happen. Now, all that being said, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, now this goes back to the slow motion Cuban Missile Crisis, this is 1962, John Kennedy is president discovers the Soviet Union installing nuclear-tipped missiles in Cuba and is prepared to run a, what he thought was a one-in-three chance of nuclear war to prevent that happening. But when you look back at it in retrospect, you think, wait a minute. It would take a one-in-three chance of a nuclear war to prevent Soviet nuclear-tipped missiles in Cuba, which actually would only have killed us about you know, 20 minutes earlier than Soviet nuclear-tipped missiles that were already in the Soviet Union. To which the answer is, yeah, but I told him that he couldn't do this, blah, blah, blah. So we could go to a different story. So we know from the, from the Cold War that there were uh, several very close calls in which despite the fact that nuclear weapons would have been catastrophic, it could have happened. Some people think it's, I think you think it's just luck that it didn't, maybe. Well, I would say a combination of yeah. fortune, yeah. Uh, Grace, Mad, which, Mad had a big impact, but it was still there were many events. Not, that not enough, not enough to be a, not enough to be a hundred percent. Secondly, the other thing about Mad that the, re, the reason why Mad was created as an acronym by Herman Kahn and his sidekick uh, uh, Brennan at the Hudson Institute to uh, uh, to remind people that this is madness. So if, if you decided. Uh, uh, to try to think of the analogy, you have a neighbor, and the neighbor is very quarrelsome. And you say, "Okay, I'm telling you, if your dog gets in my yard one more time, screw it. I've now put a bomb under my house that will blow up my house and your house, both of them." Okay? Uh, so you keep your dog on your side of the fence. Now you'll be very cautious about keeping your dog on the side of the fence. But as as the reason why they why, why this was created to help revive but could the dog get into the yard by mistake? Maybe. So could you have a nuclear war in which an accident or a miscalculation 
And the answer, again, if we go back to the Cold War history, is we had three or four yeah. quite close calls in which an accident or a miscalculation or a misunderstanding could have led to something. So while MAD has a certain, uh, it certainly produces huge caution and a willingness to compromise, it does so at a, at a cost that if it was in any other realm of your life, you would say, I'm not sure I want to, I'll take more chances on your dog in my yard than I'm going to take in blowing up my house if I, if I blow up. So, so Matt is a stabilizing force, as it has been, but it's no, potentially stabilizing force, but it's no guarantee. The other factors that I thought were most relevant were obviously economic interdependence, um, light patina of international law, perhaps. <coughs> but I have to say, I came away from, the book purports to be agnostic about the, whether this is going to happen or not, whether the war is inevitable, it says it's not inevitable. But given the pretty powerful case you make for China's rise, which I think you think is inevitable and inexorable, uh, and I, I didn't really come away very optimistic that on the United States side we were going to be able to manage it very well. And indeed, we talked about this earlier, one message, and you don't exactly say this in the book, but this is my interpretation of it. One message I take away from the book is that, I'll put it in my terms, Washington is completely out to lunch on this question. They don't think strategically. They don't see how the rest of the world sees us. They don't understand. They've not looked at China's situation in Asia from China's perspective. And that we're still playing the old hedge game. I think you can't remember what the phrase you used was. The old engagement game, hedge. Engagement yeah. hedge to try to <coughs> maintain our, you know, the, the kind of post-World War II order. That's worked really well. Let's just keep insisting on that. And, but the lesson I take away is that that is not going to get the job done. It's not going to be able to manage the problem, which is what you think needs to be done. And so I actually came away thinking on the United States side. That's before you even get to the domestic politics of the compromises or the confrontations that we would need to, um, to manage the problem. So I just have a, a complete lack of confidence on the United States side based having read your book, that we're even in the ballpark of thinking about this the right way. Our government, I mean. Is that fair? Is that a little too harsh? Well, I would say the, the proposition that Washington is out to lunch seems like a very provocative safe. proposition. Seems safe. Very safe. <laughs> I, I have made a practice to, uh, I haven't been able to hold to it entirely, but I at least have, have tried to since the election of not staying overnight in Washington. So come in the morning and get out at night because I figured I would be infected by the madness. Uh, uh, but uh, you can even be infected even if you're here just for a, little, for a little while. So I think the number of areas in which Washington is out to lunch is, right. uh, is quite But this is an important I think one. in this one, uh, and this way has nothing to do with Trump per se. Uh, I mean, I would say for, for the period, I, and I argue this, in the, it, it, the the strategy that the U.S. devised in the late 1940s that was basically the Cold War strategy, which was the framework within which I worked all my life as an old Cold Warrior, was brilliant. I mean, unbelievably brilliant. And actually one of the positive notes in the book is the argument that uh, if we were going to be serious now and, we're, and we were going to be successful, we need a surge of strategic imagination analogous to what happened between 1946 when Kennan wrote back this famous long telegram. So in April of 1946, for those of you, again, that haven't done the history, 
uh, George Kennan, who was the number two person in the embassy in Moscow, uh, wrote back a so-called long telegram to the State Department that said the Soviet Union is going to become and be a bigger existential threat to America's survival and well-being than the Nazis were. This was not a very welcome idea in Washington in April of 1946, just a year after the war. Everybody's exhausted, bring the troops home, blah, blah, blah. So nobody agreed with that proposition to start with. But it started a conversation and a debate. And over the next four years, you had the most creative period of American diplomacy and strategy ever. So you had the Marshall Plan. What a cockamamie idea, the Marshall Plan. So the idea that, again, two years after the war, you would take 1.5% of GDP per year for four years and send it to the Europeans, including the Germans and Italians, who had been killing us just two years before. I mean, who would think of that such an idea? Marshall and Atchison and Vandenberg, the famous Republican uh, leader of the, of the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. So basically a group of people we currently, uh, as students of this, re revere as the wise men did come up with a very wise set of ideas. And they became a framework for dealing with basically the, the, the surge of the Soviet Union, which is one of my four cases that count as not war. It was called Cold War. But that meant war by every means except bombs and bullets from large numbers killing each other. So I think that's a, that's a very positive uh, a component where I would agree completely, Jack, with, with your reading of it. I don't say that, but you've interpreted what I, what I think. Uh, basically, at the end of the Cold War, uh, we took a victory lap and then went on vacation or something, and basically, so there has not been a serious strategic reassessment of the U.S. position in the world and the role in the world in the, the, in the aftermath of the, of the Cold War, and that would include looking at the China question, because before the end of the Cold War, uh, if you go look at the period from 71, the opening to China, to, to uh, 91, when the Soviet Union disappears, uh, Basically, we're building up China as a part of the coalition against the Soviet Union. So that was a, uh, makes good sense. But in the period after 1991, the answer is, while on the one hand, I'm thrilled that 600 million people in China who used to be poor have emerged from poverty. That's a fantastic uh, human event. On the other hand, would I prefer to have a stronger China or a weaker China? Well, excuse me, I'm an American. I think I would like a weaker China relative to the U.S. So I don't think we work that problem hard enough. But the question, I want to go a step deeper than that, because at least as I read the book, you're leaving a little more critical than that. The question is whether, given the way this town works now, it's capable of engaging in that kind of thinking. Um, I mean, you, you have very nice things to say about President Obama, but I think you characterized the stupidest thing he ever said as basically saying something to the effect of, I don't have time for strategy. Well, I don't. I don't need a George Kennan anymore. Yeah, and and so the kind of thing that you think is absolutely necessary to rethink and manage this relationship, perhaps to make do some trade-offs, perhaps to accommodate their perspective a little bit more, to manage the rise of China. You also suggest, again, not overtly, but in parts, that we haven't been up to the task lately. So my question is, what is the mechanism whereby you think we can 
come to manage this problem if you think we can? Well, I'd say that, I mean, uh, f- first, I, as a red-blooded, red-necked American, as I told you, I believe in uh, 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 I think Mencken's line, that God looks after drunks, little children, and the USA. So I, I've always thought that's our best hope, uh, and <laughs> I could right. continue to hold hold to that. Uh, but uh, uh, secondly, uh, so I think there are two components to your question. First is, could we imagine, even with the government we have, uh, uh, an administration like like the, this administration coming and having a strategic reassessment and developing a a broader strategy. I, I think it's still not inconceivable. I think that generally what passes for strategic reviews or, you know, you send off some staff to just write some, you know, language for Congress or the exercises that are meant to justify some position that people have already taken. But I think, I think it's not impossible to imagine uh, uh, the community engaging in a much broader and more thoughtful under, uh, you know, strategic undertaking. And in the book, I argue uh, that particularly, I think, for younger people, this is a fantastic opportunity. I mean, basically, this space is not filled in. This is open space for people to think and to be thinking of things well beyond the orthodoxy. In fact, part of, I think, the uh, Trump hope that was reflected in, in uh, people's uh, uh, aspirations for Trump was that we would have somebody that was not orthodox and wasn't bound by the conventional wisdom of the of the recent period. So again, while that's going to work out un- unclear. So that's one question. But the second point, which you also reflected, so there's a bigger, deeper question, and I think it's a question for the U.S. and Washington especially, or Americans, but it's also a question for, for China, uh, which is can we make our form of government work for ourselves? So I, I say in the book, uh, and I do a version of this in my class at Harvard, I say, uh, uh, yes, I know there's no adult supervision okay, in international affairs. There's just the jungle. That's it. But let's imagine there were an adult supervisor, just hypothetically. And so this is a Martian strategist. And she parachutes in to Mary Lego, let's say. And here's Xi Jinping and Trump, and she says, guys, hold on for a second. I have a few pointers, okay? So my first pointer is, you each have huge problems, probably insurmountable problems, all of which are inside your own border, which I don't think you're gonna be able to solve. And second, at the top of that list is the question of whether you're going to, your system of government is going to allow you to govern yourself. And one of you has a dysfunctional democracy that's demonstrating that it's not going to be able to govern itself. The other one has a retro-authoritarian uh, system that basically, as Lee Kuan Yew points out, is an operating system that's not going to work in a world where people have smartphones. So each of you have a big, big problem. And... If you could figure out a way to work on your own problem, you could probably find a way in between. And actually, the version of this that I like is, again, a page from Pericles in in Thucydides. So Pericles invented something called the 30-year peace with Sparta. 
What was the 30-year peace? It was basically, let's freeze everything for a while so we can work on our own problems, and then we'll get back to the rest of the competition. And I would say, if you could imagine, again, you couldn't have a Pericles in a 30-year peace, but you could, in a number of realms, if Americans were willing, Chinese are more willing to imagine you know, things working out over the long run. Americans are, are pretty, uh, you know, we like things to be solved today. But could you imagine somehow some of the problems kind of getting frozen for a while while we see if we can make our government work better than theirs? I mean, if ultimately our form of government is not able to work better than an authoritarian party-led structure, then lo and behold, I mean, I know the end of that story. And I still have enough uh, kind of root uh, uh, belief that uh, basically as people get richer and more independent and they have ideas, they want to be freer, and therefore the notion that somebody else should, should, should drive the bus and I should just sit, simply ride, you know, I'm not going to be happy with over the long run. So I, I wouldn't give up on our side of it. All right, that's too optimistic a note to end on. So I want to like to ask you one more question. I, that's very optimistic, I think. I want to, I think the most provocative thing you say in the book, among the most provocative things you say in the book is in the nuclear section. You basically say, I'm, I'm going to quote this, that it's about the risk, that the need to take risks of war to avoid losing. And you say leaders of nuclear superpowers must nonetheless be prepared to risk a war they cannot win. And then later you say, in order to preserve vital interests and values, leaders must be willing to choose paths that risk destruction. Um, I think that's right, and it's sobering, and it's a little bit scary, but could you tell us, you flesh it out a little bit, tell us what you mean by that, and what happens if we aren't willing to risk war? Well, it's a, this is a big idea, uh, and I only deal with it a in a limited section in the book. But basically, uh, most of us old cold warriors remember MAD, and we discussed that. So in the mutual assured destruction, if there's a war, it's suicidal. So I compare this to waking up one day, and I find that my cardiovascular system and jacks have been fused, and we're Siamese twins. So we each have our head, we each have our arms and legs, uh, we each have our ideas, uh, but then however uh, evil I am, however devilish, however dangerous, however deserving to be strangled, each time you get ready to strangle me, you decide, but gee, then probably I would die in another two minutes. That's not a good idea. So now, so that's phase, or frame one. Now frame two. So now, what if I'm prepared to risk uh, something suicidal? And you think, well, okay, just go ahead and commit suicide. Then you think, wait a minute, that's my other half. I can't let him do that. So I have to humor him, encourage him, constrain him, uh, uh, seduce him, uh, induce him, whatever. In any case, if he decides to do something that's 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 destructive of himself, he destroys me. So now he understands that. And Schelling describes this very well. So basically now he can blackmail me, in effect. 
So if, if I can demonstrate that I'm prepared to run more risk than you are of something turning out destructively for both of us, and you'll therefore back down, I, so now I have to manage a relationship in which we both understand some constraints. And the reason why the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think, remains such an important uh, a story is Kennedy's willingness to run a one in three chance of right. war, risk of war in the, in the missile crisis was not because he believed uh, that the significance of the missiles in Cuba would be that decisive. It was something that he was not prepared to accept, and it was contrary to what he had been promised. But he took that as Khrushchev not getting the idea that there has to be constraints in this relationship, because if he gets the idea he can do this and get away with it, then he's going to make a move on Berlin. And in the Berlin case, he's going to have even more advantages than he has here. So I've got to try to cajole him into a different type of relationship. And I think the good news has been that as states have, the, the U.S. and the Soviet Union went through three or four very searing learning experiences and learned this. China has not been aggressive in, in risk-taking, so that's been extremely positive. I think the interesting case is Korea, again, right. and Kim Jong-un, where Kim Jong-un has demonstrated that he understands the business of blackmail. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's playing this theory out, I think. Yes, I'm afraid he is. And I think for our point of view, I mean, in 1994, I was at the Pentagon when Bill Perry was the Secretary of Defense. I was Assistant Secretary. Ash was an Assistant Secretary. Shali was the, Shali Kesvili was the chair, chairman. We all were in favor of attacking North Korea in 1994 to prevent them ever getting nuclear weapons usable material. And I still think that was a good idea, but it was a terrifying idea because it was also clear that they might retaliate. They didn't have the capability that they have today, but they might retaliate by starting the Second Korean War. And in the First Korean War, 50,000 Americans died, and many hundred thousands of Chinese, and many hundred thousands of South Koreans. So I can understand why the president of South Korea, who called Clinton at the time and said, no, 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 uh, would think, I'm not prepared to take the risk, but I could understand why to prevent a guy like Kim Jong-un having the capability to attack the U.S., Donald Trump might take a risk that you and I would think is pretty risky. Uh, it's, uh, uh, stay tuned, yeah. Okay, that is a discouraging note in which to end. So <laughs> this is really a terrific book. It's chock full of interesting history. You'll learn a lot about international relations, all in the context of explaining one of the most important problems of international politics. Graham, thank you very much. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.